0: everybody, welcome to the New Market Alliance Church podcast. For more information on the vision, programs, and news of our church, be sure to check us out at www.NewMarketAlliance.ca. We'd like to encourage you as well that no podcast, no matter how good, can substitute for the experience of joining together in person at a worship celebration. That's where God really meets people, often through the love and ministry of others. At NAC, we meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. Now let's join this week's teaching. Uh, today we're continuing our one another series with the Apostle Paul's admonition that we accept one another. And we're going to start off with, at the risk of, um, at the risk of becoming known as the Church of the Perpetual video, we're going to uh, start off with uh, a short clip from the uh, sitcom Friends.
1: uh would you mind sitting there oh, i'm saving this seat for my friend
0: ross you mean dr geller
1: doctor i didn't know he had a nickname
0: <laughs> oh he won't sit here only the people in the white coats sit over there and only the people in the blue blazers sit over here
1: well, how, how come
0: that's just the way it is
1: that's crazy
0: maybe it's crazy in a perfect world a world without lab coats and blazers But you not in a perfect world. You in a museum now. (laughs) See that scientist with the glasses? He and I used to play together all the time in grade school. (laughs) But now, Peter! Hey Peter! It's me, Rhonda, from PS 129. I shared my pudding with you, man. (laughs) he pretend he
1: don't even hear me. I I think everybody's pretending they don't hear you. Anyway, look, I don't know about you and your jackets and your separate tables, but Ross is one of my best friends. And if I save him a seat, I'm telling you, he will sit in it. Ross, Ross! Over here, man. I saved your seat. That's okay. I'm cool over here. I'll catch up with you later, Joey.
0: Oh, this is saved.
1: <laughs> Gift shop. Hey, uh, I'm really, really sorry about what happened in the cafeteria today. It's no big deal, you know. You uh, you do what you gotta do, bro. No, hey, it's not just me. I mean, the scientists and the tour guides never sit together. Whatever. It's like that everywhere, Joey. Okay, Mom, back me up here. Where you work? The, uh, the waiters eat with the waiters, right? And the chefs eat with the other chefs, right? I, I eat by myself in the alley because everybody hates me. <laughs> <laughs> Look, Ross, really, it's, it's no big deal. You know, you wear a white coat, I wear a blue blazer. That means we can't be friends at work, then so be it, you know, I understand. Dr. Geller, there's a seat over here. Thank you, Dr. Phillips. But I'm having my lunch at this table here in the middle. I'm having my lunch right here with my good friend Joey, if he'll sit with me. I will sit with you, Dr. Geller. (laughs) We work in a museum of natural history, and yet there is something unnatural about the way we eat lunch. <laughs> now, I look around this cafeteria, and you know what I see? I see? I see division. Division between people in white coats and people in blue blazers. And I ask myself, my God, why? <laughs> no, I say we shed these, these coats that separate us, and we get to know the people underneath.
0: Well, there you have it. That says it so well that I'm actually not sure I have anything to add, but I'll give it a whirl. A long time ago, I took part in a retreat in which all the participants were trying to find themselves to better understand themselves as individuals and as a group. It was one of those real kumbaya kind of gatherings. And as anybody who knows me will attest, I'm not exactly the most kumbaya, touchy-feely kind of guy in the room. Anyway, when it came my turn to say what was on my mind, I decided to start by asking the group. There were about two dozen of us. How many people here think they know me reasonably well? Raise your hands and keep them up. Most of the people there raised their hands. And I said, how many of you would categorize me as You know, normal. Every raised hand quickly came down. I thought, oh, nice, real nice. In any event, that episode got me to thinking, what is normal? Do I even want to be normal? So, like most people would do, my first step was to look up the word normal in the dictionary. And here's what I found some synonyms of the word normal are usual, ordinary, Typical, average, common, plain vanilla, run-of-the-mill, garden variety, unexceptional, and dime-a-dozen. Oh, blah. I mean, I'm not sure I want to be any of those things. Do you? So I kept looking. Now, in the psychological sense of the word, normal can mean sane, in one's right mind, all there, and well-balanced. Okay, these I wouldn't mind being known for. But dictionary definitions aside, it occurred to me that maybe we, each and every one of us, really deep down think of normal as something far more basic, far more foundational to our basic identity. Simply put, everybody thinks that they themselves are normal, and most everyone else is not. Or perhaps we might think that someone else may be normal if they're exactly like us, or at least very similar. In other words, dictionary definitions aside, we don't really think of normalcy as an objective standard. We think it's a relative term with the baseline being ourselves. It starts as soon as we become self-aware as young children, and it grows from there. We start out and we just assume that the way that we see the world is the way everyone does. As we grow older, our perception of what is normal widens to encompass our family. You might think your brother or sister is a bit weird, but fundamentally, the way your family functions is the way normal families are supposed to function, or so you believe. As you grow older still and your social horizons widen, you start to think of your friends as normal. Well, at least within limits. And then it happens. The day arrives that you realize that there are far more abnormal people and families than there are ones like you and yours. And you're not quite sure how to deal with that. But but you might get to the point where you say, hey, am I the odd man out here? But believe it or not, as we'll see in a few minutes, that's actually a good thing. Here's an example. Let's imagine a very remote community, and let's say that nobody knew ever moves in, and nobody moves away. Now, let's pretend that no one in the community has TV or media of any kind. And finally, let's imagine that the norm in this community, in this make-believe community, is that kids start drinking alcohol at a very young age, and that all adults have no fewer than four or five servings of alcohol during and after dinner. Now, let's say a family from this town moved to Newmarket when one of their children, let's say it was a boy, was 12 years old. After a few days, he starts to strike up a friendship with his next-door neighbour, and soon they're playing together in the neighbor's backyard. After a couple of hours, his new friend's mom sticks her head out the back door and says, do you kids want anything to drink? The boy from the remote community pipes up, oh, I could really go for a king-size Manhattan, Mrs. Smith, thank you. Well, she looks at him like he's got two heads and says, I can't give you that. And he says, Oh, no whiskey on hand to make the Manhattan? I'll have a martini then, two olives, please. Well, how long do you think it'd be before the kid got kicked out of that backyard and told to stay away from his new friend? Well, he goes home totally perplexed and tells his parents what happened. And his mom says, How rude. And his dad says, I think they're just cheap is all. And both parents say, just stay away from those people. They're just strange. And that's how it goes. The kid grows up thinking that any family that doesn't consume alcohol is just strange, maybe even people to be avoided. If he grows up to be open-minded, he might notice that it's actually his family that's different. If not, he might keep the same attitudes into adulthood and justify them by saying, it's just how I was raised. Or, it's just my world view. Or, it's the culture my family came from. And forevermore, use these flimsy excuses to justify himself and reject and judge others. Now, why did I use such a blatant example? because it shows just how silly and irrational most justifications for non-acceptance and rejection really are. We may think that our reasons for holding others at arm's length make sense, but the chances are that our reasons are irrational and superficial. So by now it should be pretty clear why I started off talking about the definitions of and perceptions about normalcy. It's because we are constantly, and have been really since we were young children, We are constantly making determinations and value judgments of the people around us, based entirely upon our own set of filters, regardless of whether our filters make any sense whatsoever. The way we view the world, our filters, has been built up through the influences of everyone we've ever met and through through decades of experiences. And a big, big proportion of these experiences Our influences and influences are subjective and arbitrary as opposed to objective and rational. So, relative to our own secret, internal, subjective, largely irrational standards, when we meet someone new, we instinctively categorize them they're too rich or too poor, too forward or too meek, too religious or too secular too immoral or too legalistic, too dark-skinned or too pale-skinned. Or maybe the differences that cause us to hold back are really minor. They dress too fancy, or they dress like a hobo. They're too smelly, too sweaty, too tattooed, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, ad infinitum. So when this happens, What is it that makes you think that you are so right? Most of your determinations and mine are relative to your own internal definitions as to what is the norm. But the person opposite you is also making determinations about you relative to their standards. And ultimately, this gets us nowhere. Therefore, we are left with needing to rely on the only true firm platform we have, and that's God's word. We need to exchange the subjective for the objective. And we need to trade in the relative for the absolute. And here's the thing. God's word doesn't provide for the rejection of individuals just because. We are commanded to accept everyone just as Jesus accepts us. Addressing just one of an infinite number of differences, the book of James says... Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you pay special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Well, let's be really clear here. Depending on a church's little mini-culture, the reaction could easily have been the reverse. It could have been the rich man who wasn't treated particularly well. He might have been viewed with suspicion, while the poor man was given a lot of attention. In point of fact, I have an acquaintance, Christian man, who can't stand so-called rich people. And by rich, he means pretty much anybody who makes significantly more than he does. In his worldview, if someone is wealthy, then he or she must have gotten that wealth by cheating and exploitation. My acquaintance has absolutely no interest in considering the individual on his or her own merits. The bottom line is this. All of us have a natural inclination to react negatively to those who are different. And the more different, the more the negative reaction. And by the way, this isn't just my personal opinion. This has been borne out by numerous tests and experiments in the psychology departments of a host of universities. That's the bad news. Here's the good news. Our behavior in this matter is absolutely within our control. We can change our response by an act of the will. Paul and James and Jesus and others don't say, aspire to accept one another or pray to accept one another or try to accept one another, or act like you accept one another. No, they simply instruct us to do it. And they wouldn't have said that were it not possible. I'm going to give you an example from my own family, if I may. My dad was born and raised in Belfast in the north of Ireland. The district he grew up in was called the Shankill Road, which was the heart of hardcore Unionist Protestant country. Even today, people wear T-shirts that say, proud to be a prod. Less than 100 yards away was the Falls Road District, the heart of Republican Catholic country. Back in the 20s and 30s, the violence between the two wasn't as open as it was later during the troubles, but you still lived on high alert in that district and you watched where you were going and were careful about talking to the wrong people. My dad once told me that back in those days, If he'd ever been seen even talking to a Catholic priest, he'd have likely been shot by his own people. People on both sides had been steeped in these attitudes for decades and centuries. It was just the way it was. And by the 40s and 50s, it was seeping into yet another generation, my generation. My oldest sister remembers having to run an errand in the direction of the Falls Road when she was about eight. She was terrified. It was broad daylight, but she peered down every side street and every alleyway, looking for a Catholic boogeyman, waiting to whisk her away to who knows where. Maybe a convent in the south. One of my other sisters remembers at age six, even at age six, standing on a street corner, throwing rocks at Catholic passers-by. Why? Did she have a theological problem with the Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation? I don't think so. She was six. Did she have a personal beef with Pope Pius XII? No, I'm pretty sure she never met the man. No, she simply was already absorbing by osmosis, already at age six. A worldview that essentially said, us equals Protestant equals good, you equals Catholic equals bad. There was no rational thought, It just was. Around this time, my father started to think about moving to Canada. Part of it was the opportunity that Canada represented, but I think he also knew that he had to get his family out of that quagmire. As near as I can tell, as soon as my siblings arrived in Canada about a year after he arrived, he started an about-face. He taught us all that it didn't matter what a person's beliefs were. He taught that you could disagree on the particulars of those beliefs, but you must have respect for the individual, and you must be prepared to fully and genuinely accept them on their merits. My dad put his money where his mouth was. For example, growing up, pretty well all of my closest friends were Catholics. Now, as minor as this seems to us here and now, this would have been almost unthinkable in mid-century Belfast. That would have been a big deal for my dad to see that, to see that change. But he's, this is what he taught. Two of my sisters married Catholics. My father didn't just pretend to accept their husbands. He didn't just play nice, nice for show. He genuinely accepted these guys into the family and loved them as if they were his own sons. Again, this would have been utterly unthinkable back home in Ireland. And here's something key. It was all an act of the will. When he settled in Canada, he simply decided that he was going to discard 35 years of conditioning, of worldview, and he was going to be transformed. That is not to say that transforming into an acceptor of people is easy, nor is it an overnight process, but it is clearly doable. If it weren't, the Apostle Paul wouldn't have instructed us to do so. And if it weren't, my father wouldn't have made it so for himself and his family. Paul's instruction was obviously directed at the church. That is the essence of the phrase, one another. One of the purposes of instructing members of the church in this matter is to promote harmony. Because if we can't be in harmony with each other, how on earth can we portray the love of Christ to the world? So, absolutely, first and foremost, let us accept each other here, even with all of our little foibles and idiosyncrasies and sometimes substantive differences. But that being said, I can't move move on on a topic like this without addressing the issue of the acceptance of those around us in our broader community. When I watch the news, there are times I am absolutely stunned of the sheer hatred in our society. I can't help but feel that our society is currently more fractious and divided than it's ever been in my lifetime. Rich versus poor, black versus white, Muslim versus Jew, left versus right. Okay, there's a degree to which these divisions have always been with us, but in recent days, it seems to me that the discourse has become much harsher. Once upon a time, or so it seems to me, a lot of ex- a lot of differences were expressed amidst an underlying <coughs> excuse me amidst an underlying atmosphere of respect. There was an attitude of, I disagree with your viewpoint, but I'll die fighting for your right to express it. It seems to me that now there often is no underlying respect for the other guy personally or for his views. Often I'll see someone of one viewpoint speak of another with the deepest of contempt and derision. And now more and more, or so it seems to me, the divisions descend into the most extreme violence, including, as we've seen on the news, sectarian or racial or sexual orientation-related mass murder. Sometimes people will even invoke God himself in their hatred. I have been appalled to see photos of so-called Christians, and I want to emphasize so-called. So-called Christians marching with placards that said, God hates this group or that group. You can fill in the blanks. Most of you have seen them. But I mean, really? Seriously? That's how some people want to portray God? People put words into God's mouth all the time about sectarian differences and racial differences and sexual identity issues. Where will it all stop? Well, I think it has to stop here. If the true body of Christ, and I'm not talking about the fakers, but if the true body of Christ can live up to the biblical standard of accepting one another, then we can provide hope to a society that may well be on the brink. But first we have to purge attitudes of non-acceptance and rejection in ourselves. We need to acknowledge that this garbage isn't just out there. It permeates society, but it's in the church too. I acknowledge that while I'm very accepting of certain differences in the people around me, I nonetheless struggle with certain other ones. I'm sure this is the case with many of you. Our tendency to reject some people may not be targeted at the big societal differences. Maybe in some of us, it's just there for the so-called little things. But for many people, these attitudes are still there, and we must root them out and ensure that they don't get established. We'll never impact our society unless we do. Before I finish up, I need to address the fact that there are at least two things that acceptance is not. The first is this, acceptance does not equal tolerance. Tolerance is our society's big buzzword these days. We must have racial tolerance. We must have tolerance for immigrants. We must have tolerance for you name it. This is our culture's word. And I think it sets such a very, very low bar. Here's how we normally use the word tolerate in everyday conversation. A woman might say, I tolerate my husband's overspending because he's really good with the kids. Maybe a teacher says, I tolerate Johnny's bad behavior because I know what a horrific home life he has. And perhaps someone else might say, I tolerate my puppy's pooping on the carpet because he's so darn cute. All of these have the sense of putting up with something. In fact, the dictionary defines to tolerate as to accept or endure with forbearance something or someone unpleasant or disliked. Well, that's all well and good, but it's certainly not the standard that Paul instructs or that we should aspire to. No, accepting one another is so much more. Tolerating is about forbearance. Accepting is about love. Another thing that accepting is not is approval. Jesus says, judge not lest you be judged. Many people have come to take that as meaning that they don't have the right to determine the rightness or wrongness of a certain behavior. But that's simply not what that passage means. If we were to buy that interpretation, we'd slip into moral and ethical relativism, and if we do that, the church and society at large are in deep trouble. Morality and ethics aren't relative, though. They're absolute. But here's the catch. Determining moral and ethical issues is not up to us to arbitrarily decide. God is the final arbiter, and he sets forth the standards in his word. Therefore, you do have the ability and the right to determine rightness versus wrongness, but only by using God's word as the standard. Thus, accepting the person does not automatically mean accepting their behavior. Conversely, rejecting bad behavior does not mean rejecting the person. When Jesus was dealing with the woman caught in adultery, he accepted her as a person of worth. He valued her. He loved her. He rescued her. But he also confronted her in her sin and told her to refrain from doing it anymore. Being confused about this is a very common mistake, but we need to be straight on the principle that accepting the individual does not mean condoning bad behavior if that happens to be present. In concluding, I have to tell you that this has not been an easy message for me to give because I know I don't live up to my own words. Delivering a message like this is kind of like being a parent who smokes, telling his teenage kids not to smoke. So all I can really do, therefore, is ask that you accept my words as truth, even as you make allowance for my shortcomings, of which many of you are painfully aware. So when all is said and done, when we accept one another, we are expressing God's heart. Serving one another, admonishing one another, teaching one another, forgiving one another, accepting one another. These are all different aspects of the heart of God. And for the sake of each other, the church, and our society around us, we need to pursue this, we need to pursue these, all of these, with as much resolve as possible. And that's about all I have to say. Thank you.